As you're turning there, let me begin with a question. Have you ever been reading the Bible and you had one of those moments when the Spirit of God caused a light bulb to come on in your mind? Suddenly you understood something that you had not understood before. Uh, Or better yet, have you ever had an experience where as you read your Bible, you found yourself overwhelmed by the glory of God and what you were reading? Has the Bible ever led you to sense the awful weight of God's condemnation? And has the Bible ever led you to feel the sunshine and the freedom of His mercy and His grace? Have there been moments in your own reading of God's Word when He led you to sense in your heart His love to such an extent that it was almost as if His arms were literally wrapped around you, lovingly embracing you as you read Have you ever been reading the Bible and found yourself drawn to prayer, crying out to God in worship and praise because you began to sense His presence in the very room in which you were reading? Have truth from God's Word ever put you on your face in awe and in adoration? Well, using a little sanctified imagination... I can picture the Apostle Paul pacing the floor of a house in Corinth. Um, He's been staying at Gaius' house. We know that from chapter 16 of the book of Romans. Uh, Gaius was one of the few men in Corinth that Paul had himself baptized. And so likely it's been here at Gaius' house in Corinth that Paul has been writing this letter that we call the book of Romans. And so I imagine Paul pacing the floor. Tertius is there. Uh, Tertius, if you remember, served as kind of Paul's secretary. Um, He's the one putting ink to parchment. So Paul is pacing the floor, speaking, and Tertius is, is writing the actual letter. And as Paul has been Speaking for the first time, what we now know as Romans 9, 10, and 11, there have been moments when Paul seemed to get a little choked up. He has told us several times of his love for his kinsmen, of his love for his fellow Jews, how he longs for their salvation. Over and over again, the Jews have rejected Paul's message, sometimes driving him out of towns, Sometimes stoning him. Sometimes working to have him imprisoned. And throughout these three chapters, Paul has been explaining the mystery of why it is that Jesus' own people rejected him. Here is the very Messiah. The Son of God. The one to whom every jot and tittle of the Old Testament pointed. And when he came to his own... They despised him, and they tortured him, and they crucified him. And even now that he is risen from the dead, 
and he's working to save sinners, the Jews are still persecuting Christ's apostles. Those who are Christ's messengers, bringing them the message of salvation through Jesus, they're persecuting them. Paul himself used to do that before he was saved. He was one of those persecutors. And so Paul is tackling this mystery. Why is this happening? Why are the Jewish people rejecting Jesus? And one of the things that he said is that it's happening because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So that was Romans 9, right? Paul explained that the true Israel is not those biologically descended from Abraham, but those graciously chosen by God. It is those whom God has chosen and called to be His own, not just from the Jews, but among all the peoples of the world. These are the true Israel. Second, this rejection of Jesus by the Jews is happening because these ethnic Jews continue to try and earn salvation themselves rather than accept the righteousness freely given to them in Christ. So this is the end of Romans 9 and then Romans 10. The way of salvation is by faith alone. It's a gift that we embrace. It's a gift that we take hold of. But the Jewish people continue to turn to works instead. They wanted to earn their salvation. And then it was as Paul was unpacking the third reason that the Jews were rejecting Christ that he suddenly found himself overcome by the person and the work of Almighty God. Uh, In Romans 11, Paul has been talking about deep things. He's been leading us through deep waters. And it is here that he stops pacing and he finds himself on his face worshiping. Perhaps even Gaius and Tertius are, are joined with him and for a few moments they just sang hymns together or they just prayed together or they just sat in silence and, and worshipped together as Paul came to this point in the letter. Uh, Paul has just explained in our study of Romans 11 how the unbelief of ethnic Israel is part of God's plan to save Gentiles from all over the world. And more than that, how God is going to then work through the salvation of Gentiles to save his chosen Jews. This is the message of Romans 11. The unbelief of ethnic Israel is part of God's plan to save Gentiles and then through Gentiles to save his chosen Jews. And in this way, no one will be able to boast in heaven about their ethnic heritage. No one in heaven is going to say, look, I'm a Gentile. Or, hey, I'm a Jew. Rather, all of us, Jew or Gentile for all eternity, will be saying, hey, I'm a blood-bought sinner. I'm a Christian. And we're going to praise the boundless mercy of God. We will not boast in our ethnicity in heaven. Okay? We can sing, I'm proud to be an American. Right? We can sing that here on earth, and we can do so with a good conscience. We won't sing that in heaven. We won't. All boasting will be and the mercy of God, and who we are in Christ. Amazing grace has been our theme, and amazing grace will be our theme forever. 
And so after explaining this, how in the sovereignty of God, God is going to use Gentiles to save Jews and Jews to save Gentiles so that at the end of the day, ethnicity doesn't matter and it all owes to the power of God. After explaining all of that, Paul cries out in response the last part of our chapter. So look at verses 33 to 36. Verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, before we start to dig into Paul's spontaneous yet still Holy Spirit inspired praise, I want to make three general observations. Okay, so three observations about these verses. First, note that this is fundamentally a response to the greatness of God. The greatness of God, uh, that word great has lost its meaning in our day. I picture Tony the Tiger saying, they're great, right? And it just means they're really good. I mean great in the sense of vastness right? Great, greatness in the sense of we call the Grand Canyon grand. Why? Because it's so massive. It's large. Fundamentally, Paul's worship here is a response to the greatness of God, the fact that he is massively large. God is, is everywhere at all times. He feels all things. There is nowhere in the universe where you can escape God's presence. He is already there now. The creator of the universe differs from every creature he has made in just this way. We are finite. He is infinite. We are tiny. And he is massive. And God's greatness is not just seen in the extent of his presence, but God's greatness is seen in the extent of his attributes. In other words, and this will make it clear, Paul isn't just marveling here that God has riches or that God has wisdom or that God has knowledge. He is marveling here at the extent of the riches, at the extent of the wisdom, at the extent of the knowledge. He is marveling that God has so much of these. Notice those first three words, all the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It's one thing to see a drop of water. It's another thing to behold an ocean. You and I have some some riches. You and I have some measure of wisdom. You and I have some measure of knowledge. But our measure is like a drop of water. And Paul realizes that God is like the ocean. This is fundamentally a response to how great God is and his attributes. It's not just riches and wisdom and knowledge. It's riches upon riches. It's wisdom upon wisdom. It's knowledge upon knowledge. All the depths of it, Paul says. It's it's over my head. (laughs) It's beyond me. I could get lost in this. He is overcome by the greatness of God's attributes. Second, Second, we have here 
the ultimate goal of all learning. The ultimate goal of all learning. Heartfelt worship, awe and wonder at the greatness of God is the goal of all learning. Paul has just been teaching us truths about God's ways with men. Paul has just been teaching us all these truths about God's relationship to Jews and Gentiles and how Jews relate to Gentiles and Gentiles to Jews. But he has not simply been teaching us knowledge for knowledge's sake. He's not simply been teaching us so that we would have right thinking. The aim of his teaching was not even better behavior, though that was certainly a major goal that the Gentiles would throw away their pride and that Jews and Gentiles would relate together in peace. But no, his his goal is even deeper than that. Paul's goal is that we would see God as he really is and the glorious splendor of his wisdom and his majesty and that we would worship. Mount Hermon, the goal of every passage of Scripture is ultimately that we would worship, that we would see and savor the glory of God. Now, I say that's the goal of all learning, and not just learning from the Bible, because verse 36 says, All things are from God and through God and to God. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, everything exists for God. Everything is aiming towards God. So even if, you, if you're not studying the Bible, maybe you're studying math or science, as we talked about some Sunday nights ago last year in our Worldview training. How we see the glory of God in those subjects. Or maybe it's history, or maybe it's literature, or maybe it's how to fry an egg. It really doesn't matter what you point to. All things exist for the glory of God, and we've only learned something rightly. We've only really understood something when we've gotten through it to the point of worship. So frying an egg seems silly. So let me take that one. How does frying an egg point us to the glory of God? Well, who created chickens in all of their complexity? You think you can create a chicken out of nothing? (laughs) Doesn't that say something about the glory of God? God is the only person who actually knows which came first, the chicken or the egg. Adam might know. I don't know. We'll find out in heaven. God is the one who ordained for eggs to be a source of nourishment for human beings. Can you imagine how different our lives would be if If chicken eggs didn't agree with us and we were not as human beings supposed to eat those? God is the one who designed the whole egg-making process in chickens. God is the one who designed the whole digestion process in humans. Through eggs, God shows his kindness to us as he provides for us, as he gives us life and health and well-being. God's fatherly care for us is seen in the fact that we can fry an egg. The fact is, there is simply no fact in the world that isn't God's fact. And there is no learning in the world that should not ultimately lead us to see and savor the glory of God. Now, right now, we struggle to do that. Our minds are broken by the fall. And we are not even capable of living life while identifying and responding to the fullness of God's glory in absolutely everything around us, including ourselves. But I think this is part of what will make heaven, heaven. I think this will be part of life in the new heavens and the new earth. 
that your renewed, glorified, perfectly formed mind will be able to take in the glory of God and everything around you. So that no matter where you are or what you are doing on the new earth, God's glory will be surrounding you and your mind will be making the connections to seeing Him everywhere and you will be living with a constant thrill in your soul at the wonder of God in everything. All learning should lead to doxology, to worship. This is why an education that stops the lesson before showing how the truths learned teach something about God is an incomplete education. It fails to meet education's true goal and true purpose. And certainly when it comes to studying the Bible, the grandest subject of study of all, when it comes to studying spiritual truths, Romans 11, 33-36 should always be our goal. Yes, we want character education. We want to learn how to live well for God in this world. But frankly, we are only going to be godly if God has our hearts. The the goal of every Sunday school class, the goal of every small group Bible study, the goal of every time of personal devotion should never be mere behavior modification. Lord, help me learn to control my tongue. That's a good thing. We want to learn to do that. But that can't be the end all. The goal of it all must be that God's glory would grip our hearts so that every truth of His would cause us to love Him more so that obedience springs up naturally in us. So that our obedience is a response of love to who He is and the delight that we have in Him in our souls. Third point, third point. Note that when Paul is trying to find words to say the unsayable, to express the inexpressible, when, he, when he's grasping for words to, 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 to respond to astounding glory, he falls back on the words of Scripture. To make that more concise for you, when Paul is trying to find words for worship, he falls back on Scripture. In this case, he falls back on the words of Isaiah and the words of Job. And isn't that interesting? Because both of those men, Isaiah and Job, had awesome encounters with God. (laughs) Remember Job at the end of that book? And God speaks in such power towards Job that Job ends up putting his hand over his mouth. Remember Isaiah? Beholding God in his temple and crying out, Woe is me! These men, Isaiah and Job, had experienced something of the grandeur of God in a way that few other people who have ever lived on planet earth have experienced it. And so it's to their words that Paul finds himself reaching in this moment when he is trying to find a way to express the worship that's in his heart. One of the greatest gifts of Scripture is that it gives us words to use when we're grasping for words. The Bible provides us a vocabulary for worship. Students, do you guys ever have to memorize the words in a glossary in the back of your textbook? Right? You have to memorize your your economics terms. 
your Latin terms, right, those kinds of things. And you, you, what you're doing is you're growing in your vocabulary. You're actually equipping yourself to be able to use that language. Scripture gives us a vocabulary. It actually serves our hearts by giving our hearts a verbal way of expressing our love and our adoration towards God. Mount Hermon, love the Psalms. Isn't this one of the reasons the Psalms is such a gift to us? Love the praise passages of the Bible. Hide the word of God in your heart so that the next time you are floored by a passage of Scripture and your spirit is just bubbling up and you want to worship God and you just can't find the words to say, you can just fall back on the words of David. I will extol you, my God and King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. Just fall back on Scripture and let that be the vocabulary of your heart as you worship your God. Okay, so those are my three general observations about these verses. Now, let's narrow in on the specific attributes that seem to have gripped Paul as he has been talking about God's saving plan for Jews and Gentiles. And the goal here is that we would be gripped by these as well. So first, Paul mentions the riches of God. Oh, the depth of the riches of God. What are these riches that Paul is talking about? I don't think he's talking about material riches. Yes, certainly God is rich in that way. God owns everything, doesn't he? Um, God owns the cattle on a thousand hill, and he owns the hills. Everything that exists is God's. No one is rich like God is rich. There is nothing in existence that is not his. But I don't think that's the kind of riches that Paul has in mind, mainly because nowhere in this passage to this point has Paul been talking about material things very much. Rather, he's been talking about God's way of salvation. And when we look at how Paul uses this word riches elsewhere in relation to God, we find that he often uses it to express the wealth of all that God is for his people. So, for example, he talks about the riches of God's grace, Ephesians 1.7 and Ephesians 2.7. He talks about the riches of God's kindness and forbearance, Romans 2.4. He talks about the riches of God's glory, Philippians 4.19. In Colossians, Paul speaks of the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so here in Romans 11, Paul is grasping for words to express the greatness of who God is for his people, all the glorious benefits of God for us, and the word he falls back on is this word, riches. And more than any other attribute, I think Paul is thinking here primarily about the riches of God's mercy. The riches of his mercy. Why? Look at what he just said in verses 30 to 32. He has just said, verses 30 to 32, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience 
that he may have mercy on all. So you see, Paul seems to be staggered by the riches of God's mercy. He's he's staggered by the scope of God's mercy, that it extends to both Gentile and Jew. All of us are hell-deserving sinners, worthy only of God's anger. But instead, God has chosen to show mercy. And that mercy reaches into the cold wilderness of Siberia. It reaches down into the tropical forests of South America. The mercy of God reaches into the urban centers of Europe, the deserts of Africa, the plains of the American Midwest. The mercy of God reaches people of all ethnicities, the Ecoli, the Akan, the Albanians, the Amhara people, Arabs, Armenians, Assyrians, Azerbaijanis, the Balochis, the Bamars, the Mambara, the Bashirs, the Bas, the Belarusians, the Bimba, the Bengalese, and what, 7,000 more people groups. And God's mercy extends to all of them. And not only is God reaching people with his grace in Jesus Christ from all of these people groups, but he's also reaching back to his own people, the Jews, the very people who crucified his son. And he's saying, I too am showing you mercy. There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice which is more than liberty. For the love of God is broader than the measure of our mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. There is plentiful redemption in the blood that has been shed. There is joy for all the members in the sorrows of the head. Souls of men, why will ye scatter like a crowd of frightened sheep? Foolish hearts, why will you wander from a love so true and deep? Was there ever a kinder shepherd, half so gentle, half so sweet? Is the Savior who would have us come and gather at his feet? I think Paul, when he talks about riches here, is thinking about the same thing as that hymn, the wideness of God's mercy. And yet it isn't just the wideness. It's also the depth of it. The depth of these riches, the the, the depth of this mercy towards sinners is amazing. Paul, see how far God's mercy goes. Think about Gentile peoples. There were many kinds. Think about cultures like Rome. The Roman people were obsessed with sexual immorality and violence. Think about cannibalistic tribes, like the tribes that John Patton went to reach or the Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. God's grace even cleanses cannibals from their sins. We, we know stories of child abusers, of rapists, of men and women who committed absolutely horrendous acts. And by the grace of God, they were cleansed and they were clean and they will be with us in heaven. That's the depth of God's mercy. Think about cultures. There have been many in history who sacrificed their own children to their false gods. Can God's mercy even cover the sin of child murderers? Yes. God's mercy can reach even the vilest of people. And in particular, 
what Paul has been thinking about throughout these three chapters is his own people, the Jews, and their sin of rejecting Christ. That if there was one sin that we might point to and say it was the most heinous sin ever committed, it was the crucifixion of the Son of God at the hands of the Jews. What a horrible thing to scorn the Son of God. And yet Paul says God's mercy reaches even to them. Even on the cross as they were crucifying Him, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And from then till now, every Jew will find that if he or she will repent and believe on Christ, they will find the Father ready and willing to receive them. To embrace them. Oh, the depth of the riches of God. Dear friends, as God has shown mercy to you, so we are to show mercy to others. As God has been rich in grace and forgiveness towards us, we are to be rich in grace and forgiveness towards others. We are to show kindness, not just to those who are most like us, But we are to be wide in our mercy and we are to be deep in our mercy. We are to be wide and deep in our compassion and in our love and in our forgiveness. And as we have received the riches of mercy, we are to show riches of mercy towards others. So that's the first attribute. Paul calls it riches. My best guess is he's thinking there particularly about the depths of God's mercy since that's what he was just speaking about. But then he mentions a second attribute, the wisdom of God. He praises God for his wisdom. Do you love the wisdom of God? Is it precious to you? Job 12, 13, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Paul speaks of the surprising plan of God to use the Jews to save the Gentiles and the Gentiles to save the Jews so that ultimately God's glorious grace is the substance of all our boasting in heaven. And that leads him to think how marvelous is the wisdom of God to order all things in such a way that God receives all the glory His people receive inexpressible joy and the satanic sin of pride gets pounded into the dust and utterly, ultimately, completely out of existence. And Paul just, his jaw is dropped at the wisdom of God and the way God has ordered things. When we speak of the wisdom of God, we are talking about God's purposes and we're talking about how God accomplishes those purposes. You and I often fail in both those areas. Sometimes we have the wrong purposes, and that's foolishness. And sometimes we have the right purposes, but we try and reach those purposes in all the wrong ways. And that's foolishness. But God always has the best purposes in all that He does, and He always chooses the best means to accomplish those purposes. God never makes mistakes, nor does he ever take the second best route to accomplishing his ends. Every decision God makes, every action he takes is the best action. It's perfect and it's right. It's humbling to think of God 
having all the best purposes and knowing all the best means of accomplishing them. The wise men of our world cannot compare to our Father. Our world puts up certain men and women on pedestals as examples of wisdom. Sometimes they're politicians, professors, thinkers of our day. Um, Maybe to those who don't know God, those people seem wise. But once we have feasted on the wisdom of God found in the Bible, we begin to realize that the people who are truly wise are those who have second-hand wisdom. (laughs) It's not even really their own. They're just repeating what God said, and that's what makes them wise. It's His wisdom in them. How sad it is that so many embrace the man-centered, ear-tickling advice of pop psychologists. And I haven't watched daytime television forever, but whenever I'm sitting in a doctor's office or something and they'll have that daytime television stuff on, and I'm just shocked that people listen to these gurus. I mean, the, the advice they give, it's so worldly and, and, and ungodly. And what we want to be saying as Christians is, go to God for your counsel. Go to the scriptures to find wisdom. Look, the wisdom of of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, even even those guys, doesn't begin to compare with the wisdom found here in this holy book. God is universally wise, meaning that His perfect wisdom extends to every act of His will. So for us, Sometimes we tend to be wise in some areas and less wise in others. So for example, one man may be a very wise businessman, but a very unwise husband. Or a certain woman may be very wise in the way she disciplines her children, but very unwise in her spending. We tend to be imbalanced people, wise in some ways, not wise in others. God is not like that. We can't say of God, you know, he's a really good creator. Eh, so-so on being a sustainer. We we would never say of God, he is an excellent judge. As a father, hmm, no. He's not a better warrior than he is a friend. God's wisdom pervades all that he does, and no aspect of his character is lacking in any way. He is no wiser in directing the affairs of the nations than he is in ordering the small details of your life. He is infinitely wise in both. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 1.25 that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. To many, the ways of God seem foolish indeed. Could having his son die on a Roman cross like a common criminal, really be the wisest way to bring glory to his name. And yet what appears to us as foolishness is truly wisdom beyond our comprehension. Isaiah 55, 9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Can the mind of a mosquito... Can the mind of a flea contemplate the deep thoughts of humans like us? Nor can our feeble minds contemplate the deep thoughts of God. We cannot grasp the wisdom of God's purposes and His works in history. 
Yet as God's plans for his creation, and particularly for his church, unfold, those of us with eyes to see can stand in awe. By the way, you want to know why I think everybody should study history? This is for you, Brad. This is why I think everybody should study history. And we live where, so far, we're the people who get to see the most of it. Now, the next generation will get to see a little bit more, and the next generation will get to see a little bit more. But we get to look back on thousands of years of the wisdom of God unfolding. Uh, remember the book of Revelation and Jesus come and he opens the seal and that book contains the plans of God and who is worthy to, to take the book and, 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 and break the seal? It was Jesus. And now ever since then, Jesus has been working out God's plans in history and we get to study that and see the wisdom of God unfolding. That's kind of what Romans 11 is about. It's a glimpse at God's big picture. It's a glimpse of the unfolding plan of God in history. And remember, we're not the only ones getting this glimpse. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 says that God's redemption plan has been carried out in such a way that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, the angels of heaven are witnessing the working of God in history and are marveling at his amazing wisdom and the ways in which he has worked. You ever read a novel where it seemed like all of these different characters were, didn't even know each other and, and it was like you're reading these, these separate stories and then all of a sudden at the end of the novel everything came together? You're like, oh, that's a good book. Right? Because it, it all wove together. Or maybe you've seen a movie like that, right? Where it all kind of comes together in that big climactic end and, and things that you didn't understand at first. Now, now everything makes sense. Well, that's what's happening. At Paul, even in Romans 11, it, it, things are coming together. Wait, now I get it. This is how, this is why Jews won't be able to boast in their ethnicity. This is why Gentiles won't be able to boast. This is why pride won't exist in heaven. It's, it's all for the glory of God. He's marveling at these things coming together. Well, the angels in heaven are doing the same thing. The display of God's wisdom has given the angels in heaven even greater reason to worship and love their creator. And though we will never fully grasp the wisdom of our Father, we too can praise him as we witness the accomplishment of his plans. Now, of course, this doesn't just apply to God's ways with man in general. It also applies to God's ways with you as an individual. Dear Christian, God has promised you, Romans 8, 28. God has promised you that he is working all for your good if you love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, as your life unfolds, you get to witness the wisdom of God in fulfilling that promise to you in sometimes the most unexpected of ways. Think about the depth of wisdom God must have to bring good for you from so many awful and evil things that take place in our lives. Sometimes we, we get sick, or we find ourselves in a crisis, or we find ourselves in a tragedy, and we're wondering, God, really? You're going to bring good from this? And then his wisdom gets displayed as over time we see he did bring good from that. 
He really was working for my eternal welfare. Even through that trial, that tragedy, that sickness, that, that injury. You reckon Nathan's figured out why God had him all of a sudden unexpectedly in the hospital this week? Maybe not now. And you know what? Sometimes we won't know this life. But one day we'll see it all, I hope. And we'll see how the pieces fit together. We will marvel at the wisdom of God. Now, unless you're worried, we're not continuing on in these verses tonight. We still have, we're going to do a couple of sermons on these verses. But let me give you some application. Some application from the truth of God's wisdom. Application from the truth of God's wisdom. So first, as our Father is wise, we also are called to be wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. That verse teaches us that true wisdom begins with a healthy respect, all towards the character of God. Our knowledge of His holiness, His power, His wrath, His goodness guide us towards the best purpose for our lives and the best means to accomplishing them. God is wise and He has called us to be wise. And the more we know Him, see Him, savor Him, fear Him, tremble before Him, the wiser we will be. Second, Since our God is infinitely and perfectly wise, is He not completely worthy of our trust? Why do we worry and stress over the dilemmas in our lives? Why do we get so worked up and so anxious and burden ourselves with questions about a future that we don't control? Has God not promised to take care of His own? Are you not of more value than the sparrow? Do we dare question God's wisdom by doubting His promises? No, if we really get this, God's wisdom should be for us a source of calm, peaceful assurance to our hearts. We should have a sense that The one in whom we are trusting is fully able of bringing about all that is necessary for our eternal welfare. And we should be able to lay down our heads at night and sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep. Why? Because they're resting in him. God's got this. God is fully capable. I may not see how we're going to get out of this situation. But thankfully, it's not all up to me and my puny wisdom. God's going to handle this in His wisdom. He's more than capable. Third, since our God is infinitely and perfectly wise, should we not take seriously all of His commands? To break the rules and commandments of God that He has given to us is not only rebellion, but it's folly. It's folly. God knows better than Justin what's best for Justin. God is wiser than me. And he loves me more than I can imagine. So why would I choose to go a different way than the way that my God has commanded? Every command of God is for our benefit. It's for our protection. It's for our welfare and our blessing. By knowingly sinning against God, we are asserting our wisdom is greater than His. 
Mount Hermon, the result of truly meditating on the wisdom of God is that we should have greater faith in Him and more resolved obedience to Him. When we realize that God is wise enough to fulfill all His promises, we ought to find our joy in trusting Him. And when we realize that God is wiser than we are in matters of morality and happiness and everything else, we ought to willingly obey His commands. Contemplating the wisdom of God should prompt our hearts to say what John Samus said a century ago in the hymn that you all know very well. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So let us stand in awe of the depth of the riches and the wisdom of God. And let us trust Him and let us obey Him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.